Important reminder, uh, Coop, thank you for that. Hyacinth uh, from the bulbous plant family thank of you. Asparagaceae. Very fragrant, very nice. <laughs> now, now you're just showing off. Yeah, now you're just well, showing off. I do have it right in front of me. <laughs> this is my, this is my, oh, see, yeah. This is my childhood like speech issue coming up. It rears its head every now and then. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. Hyacinth. You are one of these. Hyacinth. There, I did it. You, Hyacinth. You nailed the it. The Hyacinth Foundation. And I heard you nail it in the break. So, you know, this TV <laughs> I, I thing, you'll oh, get used to it, the you. TV thing, you know. You're, you're, just one of Someday. The, you're just one of the legends <laughs> of, of broadcasting. <laughs> you are the man, and thank you for helping us remember the toll that this virus has taken on us. Nobody does it better than you, pronunciation aside. Coop, have a great night. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. All right, Bye. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. Look, it's unacceptable uh, for the president to be doing what he's doing right now, which is playing feelings over facts. Trump says the young are in great shape. We have over 100 cases of kids with mystery illnesses that are potentially related to COVID in New York State alone. We don't know why this is happening. We don't know about the correlation of them testing positive to COVID or not. They thought it was Kawasaki. Now they think it's something that's like Kawasaki. They don't even know how to treat the cases, okay? The reason the president is gaming you this way is because in politics, feelings beat facts very often. And that's why almost every state in this country is reopening somewhat, despite the fact that none of those states meet the CDC guidelines to do so. That means governors like Andrew Cuomo of New York, my brother, are going to lose the battle of facts over feelings. And they're going to reopen ready or not. Now, what does he think of that proposition? He's here to defend his actions and the reality in his state tonight. We also have more new information on the Georgia shooting. Okay. Last night, remember, we talked to the man who owns this house uh, where uh, Ahmad or Arbery was seen on the 23rd. But this is not the surveillance video that now matters the most. There is another surveillance video. We have it. There is a 911 call that went with that surveillance video that happened almost two weeks earlier. We've been saying from the beginning, the reporting strongly suggests that this case is gonna come down to what the McMichaels thought they knew about Ahmaud Arbery. That is now clearly what this case is about and we will show you why. All right, we're gonna give you new information. We're gonna talk about the state of play. More real information, the better. Let's get after it. All right, joining us now is the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Big brother, good to see you. How are you, little brother? Oh, listen to you. Looking a little beat up, Gov. I told you this was going to happen. I told you you were going to get tired fighting back the tide of feelings. People want to reopen. They're economically desperate. It's taken too long. They don't want to watch the numbers come down. You're going to have to reopen. Told you last week. Yeah. No, I'm not tired, Chris. It's just some of us work more than one hour a day. And uh, feelings don't beat facts. They don't beat facts. I understand how in politics people respond to feelings, but feelings don't beat facts. Look at what I've been doing from day one uh, with the briefings that I'm, I'm doing. 
only facts. People are starved for facts and information. They don't want spin. They don't want the hype. They don't want all this political filter and rhetoric. They want facts so they can make their own decisions. And that's what I've been doing here in New York, and people all across the nation are, are watching. So uh, they do want facts, and facts win in the end. I understand you can pander to feelings, but the facts win. Well, if the facts are winning, then why are 48 states opening right now to different degrees, including your own, even though no one meets the CDC guidelines to do so? Well, I can't answer for other states. There are states that are opening that don't meet CDC guidelines. All that's of them. true. All. Uh, how, okay. How that's happening, uh, that's a, a political question. It's been left up to the governors. There's a very strong political sentiment to open up, and mm -hmm. people are frustrated. There's no doubt about that. And you have to open because you can't survive this. Mm -hmm. Uh, economically for a prolonged period of time. But that doesn't mean you deviate from the facts. What we're doing in New York is we have the most fact-driven, data-driven reopening plan in the country, period. Seven criteria, all based on the facts. No region opens unless they meet the factual thresholds. Uh, and that's what's going to govern us. It's what's governed us from day one, and we will uh, throughout this pandemic. How do they meet the factual threshold when you are strapped for cash and unable to test in still any real comprehensive way anywhere in your state? Yeah, well, what you said is just not a fact. If it were a fact, you'd be right, but it's not a Where fact. Where is it wrong? Uh, we have different regions in this. I'm going to explain if you let me finish. We have 10 regions in this state, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very different across the state. We have the worst cases in New York City, the worst in the United States, worst in some countries. We mm -hmm. have regions upstate right. that are more like rural America, uh, where the numbers are dramatically different. So we do it region by region. And every region must hit numerical thresholds. The CDC put out preliminary guidance. They're supposed to be doing follow-up detailed guidance. We're still waiting for that. But the preliminary guidance of the CDC, and that's what Dr. Fauci goes back to, decline of cases for 14 days, surge capacity in hospitals, surge capacity in ICU units, enough PPE equipment. Uh, tracing and testing that operation Can you has test to be in enough place. in any of your regions to know for a fact whether or not cases are rising or falling? Yeah, we will not open a region without the adequate testing in place. Do you uh, have it in place White already? Coronavirus task force. Uh, we d will the no region can open before this Friday, May fifteenth, uh, and. Any region that wants to open on May 15th is going to have to hit all seven of those criteria, including the testing capacity and tracing capacity. Do you think any will hit the uh, all criteria? Yes. Yes. They'll be able to test to a level of sufficiency that the people in that region will know whether or not doing certain things is safe. You'll be able to test enough people frequently enough? Yes. The uh, White House Coronavirus Task Force put out guidelines on what they thought adequate testing was. Uh, it's about 30 per 1,000 residents. Right. Uh, that number of tests will be performed by that region for that region to open. There's then a threshold of how many tracers have to be in place. Here we have uh, former Mayor Mike Bloomberg, who's, who's been fantastic, uh, working with Johns Hopkins, putting together the most sophisticated tracing 
operation in the country. So and that will be for each region uh, in place, otherwise they can't open. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, good. Thank you for that. Thank you for the, recogni uh, the recognizing of what's happening in different My regions. pleasure. Because that's people uh, what are going to watch. My I want to ask you one more political question. My pleasure. I'll take it easy. And by the way, what you do in your pressers aren't all facts. You, you just said today in one of your pressers uh, that some people are never happy. Uh, some people are like that in your own family. Who in your own family is never happy? Thank I don't you. remember Next at question. this time Next that question. statement. Yeah, I bet you don't. Uh, I'll refresh your recollection in the break. But let me ask you this. Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats, they're putting forward a new bill. Uh, and in that bill, there is a ton of money for state government, uh, not just for testing and tracing, but uh, money to fill shortfalls. Are you satisfied with the massive amount of money in that bill? I, look, I think the House put forth uh, a very smart bill and it's in the right direction. Look at what we've done thus far. Uh, start the economy, stimulate the economy, uh, compensate for coronavirus. Yeah, so we gave a lot of money to large corporations, uh, businesses, and rich people. Who, didn't we, who did we not fund? Police, firefighters, school teachers, healthcare workers, all the heroes of this uh, situation, right? You turn on the television, you see all these commercials, hail the heroes. Yeah, Washington has to understand it. That's who gets funded through state governments and local governments. Three trillion dollars for the states. You know how much state governments states. and local governments have had? But now That's three what trillion. That's so far. Three trillion now, though. They're, they're proposing. Is that enough? Five hundred billion. But you round up a little bit. It says three trillion dollars for yeah, the states. Is the total is the total total package? It's a five hundred billion to the states. But you're you're close enough. Well, hold on. It's a second. like horseshoes. Hold, but hold on the a point second. is funding the state governments and local governments. Yes. I have a sixty-one billion dollar hole. Okay. Right. If I don't get that, if I don't get funding from Washington. I have to reduce my budget and who I fund. Right. Who do I fund? I fund schools, police, fire, local governments, etc. Right. Why would you starve those areas? This Plus, is this whole plan is on the governors to reopen, right? Mm -hmm. The governors will decide, the governors will reopen state by state. How do you not provide funding for the governors to do the reopening that the nation's relying on? Right, but here's the argument against it. One, it's $3 trillion. You have to figure out how to distribute it. You want $61 billion. The pushback is the job of the federal government is not to make up your budget shortfall for you. That if you have to make hard cuts, make them. Everybody's going to have to make hard cuts. This is a hard time. Why should they give you everything that you need so that you don't suffer any impact when they're not going to be able to do that for everybody? Yeah, first of all, because me is not me, right? They just did funding for corporate. Why didn't they say that, that to the millionaires? Why didn't they say that to the big corporations? Why didn't they say that to the uh, other business corporations that they funded all around the country? So we'll bail them out, but... Police, fire, hospitals, and schools, we're going to close them down. Come on. Makes no sense. Let's take a break. Two very big issues on the other side of the break. What do you do about schools? We see California moving on universities. What does the governor say is going to happen in his state? And what about K through 12? When do you make that decision? And what's going on with kids? The president says kids are doing great. They're, they're, they don't have any risk. What's all these cases in New York? What do they know about them? I know the governor's concerned. We'll find out why right after this.
right, we're back with the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, my brother, of course. Uh, we were having a discussion about budget priorities and what the federal government um, should do for you right now. Um, we're, that's an ongoing discussion because this is going to take time. You're going to have problems for a while and you're going to have to make hard choices. Let me shift to something that is urgent right now. The president says this situation uh, is different because it doesn't really affect kids. Now, we did believe that, of course, in our own family, right? Mario got it. So it's not that kids are immune, even though we hope they were. But you now have over 100 cases of something that we don't even really know what it is. New York pediatric multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome, like Kawasaki disease, but not Kawasaki disease, may be related to COVID-19 because 40% tested positive for antibodies 60% of the sick tested positive for the virus. This is another layer of the mystery. How concerned are the health officials in your state? Very much, very much. And look, this is important. Uh, first, the point is, this virus has been ahead of us all along. Uh, we, we, it's beaten us at every turn, Chris. Uh, when it first started, it was coming from China. But it turns out it didn't come from China. It came from Europe. Uh, and nobody even knew. And we sat here letting Europeans come January, February, March. Two million Europeans came and they brought the virus with them because it had moved from China to Europe and we had no idea. Uh, then if you, had the, uh, if you had the virus and you had the antibodies because you recovered, you would be immune, right? You were supposed to be immune. Now they're not so sure that you're immune. Uh, and then kids, the good news was kids couldn't get it and it wouldn't bother kids. Well, now we're not so sure. What we're finding in New York, but you watch, it's gonna be true all across this country and all across this world. It doesn't present as a COVID case. It doesn't present as a respiratory illness, which is what COVID normally is. It's an inflammation of the blood vessels and then an inflammation of the heart. Uh, and what we're, we're looking at 100 and, 103 cases actually in the state of New York right now. And you're right, they either have the antibodies or they're positive for COVID. And it's an inflammation of the blood vessels and of the heart. And it's very serious. Uh, many of them go into the ICU. Uh, our State Department of Health found it first, frankly, and is talking to the other states. And now 13 other states are saying, well, we have cases like this. Five countries on the globe are saying we have cases like this. And it's really tricky because these are kids who may have been exposed to the virus weeks ago and have this uh, almost delayed reaction to it. But it is frightening because the, the one good news, right, was that children wouldn't be uh, affected by COVID. And now we see these cases uh, from less than one year old to 21 years old. Uh, we lost a five-year-old boy, seven-year-old boy, an 18-year-old girl died from this. So it's a very serious situation. And that's why anyone who says we understand this virus, uh, we just don't. We haven't from day one. We didn't know how it traveled. We don't know who it infects. We don't know what the uh, ramifications to the infection are. And now we're, we're really troubled uh, if you have children who might be uh, really affected by this uh, virus.
What does this mean for schools in the fall? We saw what California did with the state universities. You have to figure out what to do with your state universities. The private universities will then play off that. But K through 12, what you say happens in the state applies to private and public schools, uh, parochial schools as well. How close are you to making a decision? Well, we've said in this state they will be closed through the academic year. We haven't made a decision on summer schools yet for K through 12. Uh, on, the, on the decisions about college in September, we're just not there yet. Uh, as I said, I don't, I don't believe that anyone really understands what's going on with this virus. I don't know where we really are with therapeutics or, or treatments. And uh, I want to make decisions, Chris, when I have the facts, when I have the information. And I understand schools have to plan for the fall semester, and I'll be respectful of their planning period. And we've told them, come up with a plan, because how do you open a school in September? You can't have gatherings. You can't have large number of children in a classroom. But you can't uh, get everybody back to work school building. if they're not in school, K to 12, because people won't be able to get back to the workforce. They'll have nobody to take care of their kids. And if we don't get back to work at some point, you know, people are desperate. They are literally starving, as you know, in your state. Yeah, they're desperate. Let's find out what is happening with this COVID virus and, and kids. Uh, and then let's see what the answer is. And let's see if somebody tells you, well, uh, Mario and uh, Cha-Cha may wind up getting the virus and may have this uh, inflammatory heart disease. And then see how anxious p parents are to send their children back to school. So all I'm saying is this changes. Uh, and I can't make a decision about September now because uh, that's a lifetime away. Fair point about we the timing. We have time. I told the school's brain. Fair point about the timing. But Thank last, you for that. Thank you. Last point about Thank this. You. you know, I'm glad you agree with me. Thank you very much. Let's end on this. Uh, that the facts versus feeling thing <laughs> is real. Yeah, I'm glad you think it's funny. I want to show you uh, a clip of the president today talking about Tony Fauci because it is a demonstration of how feelings are overwhelming fact in this situation, literally by intentional assault. Watch this. Dr. Fauci yesterday was a little cautious on reopening the economy too soon. Uh, do you share his concern? He wants to play all sides of the equation. When you say Dr. Fauci is playing both sides, are you suggesting that the advice well, he's given to you is I was surprised by his answer, actually, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, it's just, to me, it's not an acceptable answer, especially when it comes to schools. Now, to be fair to Fauci, by the way, he was never saying uh, you can't open schools, you can't open this, you can't open that. I, I think the media was actually being a little unfair to him in context. But the president is playing to people's feelings. We got to reopen. You got to be back in school or you're not really open. Uh, it's been too long. And that's why states are reopening, Gov, because it's not about the facts that are reopening them. And you're going to have to follow that same path if the people demand it. Yes or no? No, no. Uh, look, the, the, you are in a position of leadership because you're supposed to lead. If you're saying that I am a mere barometer, uh, I am a windmill for emotion, and I will point in whatever direction the emotion points, uh, then you haven't noticed anything that I've done in public service uh, as governor or as attorney general. And I don't agree that feelings win. Uh, Dr. Fauci, who uh, is all fact-based, science-based, he has more credibility on this issue, according to polls, than anyone in the nation. Uh, I have credibility on this issue, according to polls, 
uh, nationwide. And I'm all about facts. And when I do offer a, a political op an opinion, I say it's an opinion. You know, and I pivot and I say, here's my opinion. I have problems with family members. But that was a personal opinion. I present facts. No, that's Dr. a fact. Fauci presents you facts. You do have problems with people in your family. That is a fact. <laughs> they certainly have problems with you. I can tell you that. Only you. No, no. Only you. I'm, Only you, I brother. like you the best. That is the harshest commentary that someone can say about your standing in the family. I'm as good as you got. All right? Yeah, I know. That's a problem. <laughs> Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, you're dealing with very important things. Uh, I know that you don't take yourself seriously, but you take the job very seriously. That's what this situation demands. I love you. Thank you for coming on the show. Love you. All right. Love you, brother. I love you, big brother. All right. Uh, the COVID tests. Listen, I don't like raining on our optimism. OK, believe me, uh, I'm as anxious as of any of you to see more sunshine here and the rapid COVID tests. I was a big fan of the possibility and looking at the early science on them. The president loves them. Uh, that's what they're using on all the people who are proximate to him. But now we have evidence that they may not have as good. First of all, let's just be honest. They have a high failure rate, it looks like, in this last set of studies. So should we be counting on them, let alone having our president be dependent on them? Sanjay's going to take us through it next. There's a new preliminary study that claims uh, that the Abbott ID, uh, now coronavirus test, used by the White House might be highly inaccurate. NYU researchers say it could have a false negative rate as high as 48 percent. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is back with us tonight. Uh, what do you make of the basis for the analysis and what do you make of the finding? Well, this is a, a study that came out of NYU. They looked at, uh, you know, I think 30, 35 samples, somewhere in there. And um, the failure rate was, was obviously very concerning. You know, uh, we, Abbott has, has commented on this, saying they're looking into it. Uh, maybe the tests weren't being performed correctly. But this is concerning, Chris. We've been doing some reporting on Abbott for some time. As you mentioned uh, before the commercial break, this is obviously a significant sort of test because it could give results really quickly. If you're waiting days for your test results and you end up having the virus, you don't know it, you could be out there spreading it. That's been the concern. So people need results quickly. This could give one in 15 minutes. But even before this study, which still needs to be peer reviewed again, and Abbott needs to look into this more, uh, there were studies suggesting that it could have a failure rate, uh, false negative rate, I should say, of 15 to 25 percent. And again, I think people know what that means. But Chris, if 100 people have the infection, they all get the test. If you have a false negative rate of 15%, that means 15 of those people will be told you don't have the virus, they actually do. If you're in a hospital and you get put into a COVID negative part of the hospital, a place where there's not COVID spreading, now you spread it. That creates a cluster in a hospital. Same sort of thing could happen in a nursing home or, you know, obviously we're talking about states opening up, people out there out and about potentially spreading. This is a big concern, especially given that people can spread this without symptoms. They have no other barometer by which to measure other than the result of this test. If it's wrong, that's a problem. What do you make of the reciprocal argument, which goes that, yeah, but Sanjay, even if it's 15%, at least you have 85% accuracy, and that's better than nothing, which is where we're starting from. It's, it's better than nothing, but there are better tests out there. You know, I mean, the thing as about the fast? test, again, was... No, not as fast. That's that's the issue. So, you know, you have tests that can get you to 98%. So it becomes a question of 
what are you what are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to have 15, 25, even 48, you know, nearly half the people thinking that they are uh, negative when in fact they're carrying the virus? Or would you have a, rather have a faster result? Ideally, you'd like both, you know, but it seems like even after all these months, we're still not in that position in this country. We don't have a test that is widely available, that is fast, and that is reliably accurate in terms of not giving false negative results. We need to have that. I do want to state again, Abbott's looking into this. Right. Perhaps the tests were not performed well at NYU. I mean, they have these various things that they want to look into because I, like you, would love for this test to work uh, because of the speed of the test. But a false negative rate like that is not going to be acceptable uh, in hospitals and nursing homes in the general community. Well, we'll see what they come up with. Let me ask you about these hundred plus cases in New York and supposedly other states saying that they're having kids uh, with this multiple inflammatory symptom uh, syndrome. Uh, looks like Kawasaki disease, which yeah. I'd never heard of until this situation. But basically it's mm -hmm. swelling around the heart uh, of these kids. Uh, is this something that is still discreet? at this point, or is it something that we really have to look at about COVID uh, and its reach that is still unknown? You know, it does appear to be fairly rare, Chris. So, so thankfully, you know, 100 potentially patients uh, months into this pandemic now is when these, uh, these we're starting to see these kids. Were we missing them earlier? Or is this, as your brother was talking about, truly a post-inflammatory sort of situation? So after someone has had the infection, now a post-inflammatory state. I talked to sources right when I heard about this, and I heard about this a couple weeks ago out of the UK because there was an alert sent out, Chris, to all the hospitals in the UK. It came out a weekend, two weeks ago, saying hospitals be on the lookout for this. We're, we're hearing about this, be on the lookout. Got my antenna up, I called my sources in Asia, and I said, what about you? You guys had earliest cases, uh, even with kids. They really weren't seeing it over there. Okay, so really wasn't something that they saw an increased number of children with this inflammatory-like syndrome in Asia, uh, which again, had the earlier cases. Why is it something that's affecting predominantly Europe and the United States? We don't know. There could be a genetic predisposition here. It could be that the virus is a little bit different. We know that there's been a, a slight mutations to the virus, nothing that's that significant, mm -hmm. but perhaps significant enough to cause these sorts of problems. But thankfully, Chris, as we've sort of been talking to hospital systems across the country, it does still seem rare. It can be catastrophic when it happens. I interviewed a 12-year-old girl and her father today. Uh, she went into heart failure, had two cardiac arrests, was luckily resuscitated and is doing fine, but it can be a very significant illness. And I think this is a message for uh, obviously doctors and nurses, but also parents who say, okay, my kid has recovered. Let me still be diligent about them. Just like we've been saying with adults, Chris, like yourself, you know, recovery is, is still something we didn't even think about. We didn't have the luxury of thinking about two, two three months into this. Now we got to start getting serious about what does recovery really mean? after someone has gone through this infection with adults and, and now with kids. Yeah, but if it starts affecting kids, it's an entire game changer in terms of the nonchalance and the feeling index that my brother completely rejects about our political calculus right now about how we reopen. If we're worried about our kids, every calculation will change. Sanjay, thank you very much for taking us through you this. Got it, I appreciate it. All right, we got new details no uh, in the shooting death of Ahmad Arbery. Now, since our interview just last night with the owner of the home uh, that he was seen entering, things have changed even about that man's story. There were things he didn't tell us that we're now finding out from different reporting sources. And we went back to his lawyer, who's with us as well, to her credit. 
She's back to explain what we didn't know 24 hours ago, and more importantly, its relevance. Next. All right, this is going to take a little bit of focus and attention, uh, but it, it matters if you care about the shooting case in Georgia. Our investigation of this case has always pointed to February 23rd, the day that Arbery was killed, not being a one-off. The theory is that the accused in this case, the McMichaels, seemed to have some sense that they knew the deceased, that they knew about him, that they were looking for him, okay? Now, new information has come to light that makes this much more likely, and here it is. Surveillance video that was recorded nearly two weeks before the shooting. This is February 11th. You see what it shows. A man at the same unfinished property at night. Remember, on the 23rd, it's during the day. Easier to see here at night, different. Uh, Tough to make out if there are any similarities between the men. That's for the police and for you to judge for yourself. This is the same property owned by Larry English, who was on the show last night. English didn't tell us, even though we asked him, and we'll take that up with his lawyer. Um, But we now know that when he learned of this video, he texted the video to his neighbor, Diego Perez, on the 11th. Perez then offers to check things out, since English lives some 90 miles away, being a good neighbor. At the same time, Travis McMichael drives up and sees this trespasser near the house, calls 911. We now have a portion of that newly released call. Neighborhood, and I just caught a guy running into a um, house being built two houses down from me. Um, when I turned around, he took off running into the house. Okay. What did he look like? Uh, it's a black male, red shirt, white shorts. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. When I, it just startled me. Um, when I turned around, when I turned around and saw him and backed up, he reached into his pocket and ran into the house. So I don't know if he's armed or not. Um, but he looked like he was acting like he was, so, uh, you know, be mindful of that. But we've been having a lot of burglaries and break-ins around here lately, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, I had a pistol stolen January 1st, actually. And, uh, you know, he, he's, I've never seen this guy before in the neighborhood. Now, put that all together, okay? McMichael says we've had a lot of break-ins, burglaries. Now, there are no reports of those, okay? But... The McMichaels did report that they say their gun was stolen from a vehicle. That's in his mind. He says it in the 911 call. We had a gun stolen. Who does he think stole that gun? He says he put his hand in his waistband. Maybe he had a gun. This is the 11th. He's out of breath. We have no indication that he pursued this person. I don't know why he's out of breath. He was supposed to be in his truck. So put that to side. We don't think that there was any kind of pursuit here or anything. But the 11th is when that happened, not the 23rd. Did the McMichaels believe on the 23rd that the man they saw jogging down the street was the man they saw the night of the 11th? Now, I say they. Perez, Diego Perez, the neighbor, remember, the man that Mr. English called and told or texted the information about what happened on the 11th in his house, he did an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He gave a similar rundown of events, saying the man reached for his waistband. He could have been going for a phone. They don't know what he was going for, but Travis McMichael got spooked, went down the road. 
The AJC says Perez told them that when Travis McMichael returned, he was with his father, Gregory McMichael, and they uh, were and he was armed. Okay, now, is this tape, the 11th, the one that the McMichaels referred to the day they killed Arbery? Remember what we thought was weird for them to say on the 23rd, because how did they know where Arbery had been, that he had been in that house under construction? A police officer wrote that day. Gregory McMichael stated that there have been several break-ins in the neighborhood. And again, we don't see police records of break-ins, but this is what is in his mind. And further, that the suspect was caught on surveillance video. They couldn't have known about the surveillance video from the 23rd. It had just happened, as far as we know. And Mr. English says he doesn't really know them and he never told them about it. All right, taking him at his word, are they talking about the 11th? Now, after the shooting, Gregory McMichael told police they had seen the man that Travis shot the other night, the 11th, and suspected he was armed, like they said on the 11th. So they grabbed their guns before chasing down Arbery. Now, to be clear, I don't know. You don't know. We don't know who's on that February 11th video, if that's Arbery. But maybe, apparently, they thought he was. Now, also remember this, even if everything I just said is true, and that's what their state of mind was, does it change the analysis of the case? I say, no, not legally. These aren't cops. These are private citizens. And their rights under the citizen arrest law, which we'll talk about in the next segment, are very narrow what they're allowed to do. Let's get some more context from Larry English's attorney, Beth Grady. First of all, Beth, thank you for coming back. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Now, Help me understand uh, the events of February 11th and why they didn't come up last night. Well, just to be clear, Larry English's story has never changed. He has always said that prior to February 23rd, there were four or five occasions when someone or more than one person came onto his property. And at one point it was a couple that had been happening since October 19th. And um, so he's always said there were other occasions. Right. But when I asked, like, you know, uh, have things happened? Did you ever have any concerns before? Did you let anybody know? He said, no, you know, I didn't make any report about the 23rd. And um, no, I, I don't know about what happened. Uh, why didn't he just say to me, yeah, on the 11th, another guy broke in and I sent it to my neighbor, Mr. Perez. And they actually uh, had a situation where they confronted a guy that they said was a young black man that night. Seems pretty relevant. Well, what he has said is that he had nothing stolen and he didn't make a police report. He contacted the authorities after each time, as, as best I can tell, beginning with October 19th. He placed a non-emergency call on October 19th or thereabouts. And at that point, the officer gave um, my client his telephone number, his mm -hmm. cell number. And every time one of these videos happened, my client sent the video to the officer. So he always kept them informed. What he did not do was press charges because he could not identify a crime. Understood. Um, nothing had been stolen or taken. So he, he said he wasn't aware of any burglaries. And what he has repeatedly said is he has never used the word burglary because that involves a, a felony sure. um, contemplated. And he can't say that that happened. And as he has said repeatedly, nothing was taken, nothing was damaged. Right. All he had right. was possibly a misdemeanor trespass. Right. And that's what he's, what he's taken up every time with the authorities. I agree with everything you just said. 
I am accusing Mr. English of nothing. He has no duty to tell anybody about anything that happens on his property, frankly. He doesn't have to tell the police or anybody else. It's his business. Um, what I'm saying is that it seems that if you're trying to help understand a situation, the fact that on February 11th, there was another guy in your house and Travis McCready, uh, McMichael showed up and was, you know, made contact with that guy. And your neighbor also made contact with that guy. And obviously the McMichaels were referring to this surveillance video on the 23rd when they saw Ahmad Arbery. <clears throat> Mr. English is aware of this. Why didn't he decide to offer it up last night? Is he well, nervous? He's aware, he's aware of there having been multiple people who've come on his property and that there were videos. He's not aware of what the McMichaels might have known or thought. He didn't have any contact with them about this. Like I said, he's only met Travis McMichael once back in last summer and never had another conversation with him. And so he doesn't know what Travis McMichael was thinking. All we knew is that the February 23rd video was being released and we had to make sure that video was understood. Right. And so we talked about that video because that is what everybody else was focused on. But we did repeatedly say that there were prior videos. And he said that he has just been very clear that none of those videos depict a crime. Now, uh, in no, terms I'm with of you on that, Beth. I'm just saying I, something different. I'm not saying they depict a crime. And again, I am I, I will continue to thank you for taking this opportunity. Um, but you know what I'm saying here. I'm saying that the information of what happened on the 11th, forget about Mr. English, uh, just you uh, using common sense, let alone your legal education. Um, when the McMichaels clearly think that what they, the person they saw on the 11th is the person they saw on the 23rd, don't you think that that's interesting information uh, if you're trying to well, be helpful if, to what people understand? I mean, you didn't mention it sure. either for that matter. Sure. If my client had known that that's what the McMichaels thought, he would have said that, but he didn't know that. He didn't know what the McMichaels thought. He didn't know if the McMichaels had seen this video. He had, had given all of this information to the police, but he's never um, been in a position to know what the McMichaels think about any of the videos. But he had, a, other... he had a text where he referred to Travis, right? He Tra did not. He did not. No, Diego, no, that... Diego was referring to Travis with um, Mr. English. So he knew right. that Travis Diego, was in the loop. Well, Diego sent a text referring to Travis, but at that point, Larry English didn't know who Travis was. Mm -hmm. So that didn't mean anything to him. That's just Diego talking about some person in the neighborhood. And I mean, keep in mind, you and I are coming into this story at the end when we know what happens. We know it ends in a killing that may be murder. So we look back and we see what's important. We see what's significant. But when he was living through that, and by the way, he spent most of the time from December 29th through the end of April, he's very, he's very ill man. He was in and out of the Mayo Clinic. He had heart surgery. You know, his life was not building toward this moment in his mind. Right. His life was about trying to deal with his illness. Again, I'm and not, so I'm not trying back. to put on anything on Mr. English. Right. I'm, oh, I'm not putting I anything on him. I understand. All I'm saying is I, I had not seen that text. I and you. when I, I saw it, which was last night, so what happened was we were on the phone with the AJC trying to figure out some dates of the prior incidents. And that's when he found the text and he sent right. it to me. And I said, this is Travis. And um, I, I don't think he had not gone back to look at the text before okay. that. And he didn't remember Travis because it didn't mean anything to I him. I totally get it. I just, I'm just saying as a point of curiosity, mm -hmm. and I was, I was grateful for you to come back to give us access to the surveillance video. I, 
Thank I'll come you very every much. night. <laughs> I, no, I don't want to do that to you. But thank you for very much for giving us more information to help make sense of this. Certainly is very helpful in putting us inside the mind of the accused. Beth Grady, thank you. And the best for the health of your client. Thank you. All right. Be well. Thank you. So what does this mean from a legal analysis standpoint? OK, uh, let's bring in Laura Coates, former federal prosecutor, and talk about this right after the break. Let's bring in Laura Coates. So, Laura, the McMichaels, at least Travis, uh, seized this man on February 11th uh, after there is another similar trespass situation and the owner of the house sends the text of the video to the neighbor and the neighbor checks it out, sees the same person. When Ahmad Arbery runs past their house on the 23rd, they think that's the guy from the 11th and they take off after him. That seems to be the best reckoning of the circumstantial evidence we have in this case about where their heads were. What does it mean to the legal analysis? Well, frankly, it comes down to fundamentally that what you've described does not change the inquiry the prosecutor will make, which is whether they were justified in using lethal force against this person as citizens, not as members of law enforcement, based on their assumption that they recognize someone from days prior. Why this is so important is because as you look at all the 911 calls, you look at the discussions of Larry English and his counsel and everything, it comes down to the word property. They're talking about trespassing in somebody's property. Now, you can, in fact, defend your own home. You could defend your own dwelling, but neither of the McMichaels actually had ownership rights over this dwelling. Now, why is that important, Chris? It's because they're using lethal force to defend property that they do not own. This, the law is clear in Georgia that says you could use force you could use force to defend property as long as you are lawfully in possession of it. It belongs to one of your family members or that you have some legal duty to actually protect the property. None of that is true. It seems as though, based on the way we know the facts, they have taken it upon themselves to try to defend property that even the owner did not report mm. on the 911 emergency call. That's extraordinarily important here because it does not change the underlying inquiry of a prosecutor as to whether they were justified to use lethal force or even to stop Ahmad Arbery in the first place. So there are two things to unpack here. One is why these new facts don't mean what so many, uh, you know, uh, social media lawyer types, you know, non-lawyers uh, think it means. And the second is the uh, citizen's arrest analysis. So first that people hear this and they say, I knew that Arbery was up to no good. I knew it. First of all, we don't even know who the guy is on the 11th. We don't know if it's the same person who was the we 23rd, but we do know this that mm -hmm. that thinking is exactly why the McMichaels are in trouble in this prosecution, because they thought it was the same guy and they thought it empowered them to go after him. When under the private, uh, the, the private citizen, the citizen's arrest law, it doesn't do that at all, Laura. All this does is tell a prosecutor what your motive was, which is usually hard for them to show at trial. It's extraordinarily important to notice that in the citizen's arrest statute, Chris, and you're right to even look at it, because what it actually says is the only reason somebody is empowered by this statute, the only way that people can be empowered by that statute is that they actually see the crime being committed or have immediate knowledge of it. What you have strung together is a series of assumptions, not prudence, not careful consideration of the facts of the case. Shoot. 
Let me try and get Laura back. Do you see what's on your screen? Put it back there for a second. Uh, we'll try and get Laura back. There's, there's no substitute for her. Um, just look at this. If the offense is committed in his presence, okay, or within his immediate knowledge. So let's say you say, well, they knew about this. No, they didn't know about anything on the 23rd. They think they knew something about the 11th, but they don't know that that was Arbery. And even if it were Arbery, and we don't know that it was, it wasn't a felony to trespass. They don't get the protection of this. I'm sorry we lost Laura. She's always a value, but it's now time for D. Lemon. Anyway, uh, Laura, I'm sorry about what happened with you. I'll get you back tomorrow night. D. Lemon's time is now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.